What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Mylan Advisors. I'm Jess Larson. Here on our Innovation and Leadership Podcast, this is part two with Adam Braun. All of you that came to work at an organization like Pens of Promise, you have some great narrative, right? And and you need to find your story um, so that you can not just like market the organization, but market yourself as like a compelling part of it. This is another episode of our innovation and leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Before we get rolling, I want to invite you to get involved with Child Rescue, the charity our founders started. To learn more about them, just come to our website, iCollective.co, and check on the Child Rescue tab on our menu. Also, I want to talk to you about one of our show's sponsors. I met these guys back on episode six. CEO Zach Smith was telling me all about starting a skateboard company and how much he hated doing the bookkeeping uh, for a skateboard shop and how he really uh, got led to start this business, Bookly, that's a hybrid combining bookkeeping software and human services. And I'll tell you why I let him become a sponsor. It's because I use their service now. I don't love paying 50 bucks an hour for bookkeepers to do stuff that I know software could do way, way cheaper, but uh, I don't love bookkeeping at all. So I want a real live human who knows what they're talking about to help me with the stuff I don't understand. Uh, probably the straw that broke the camel's back for me, though, the thing that put me over the top was that they could do my taxes and payroll also. Um, so totally suggest checking them out. Go to their website, bookly.co, and check out their flat rates. I've been super happy with them. So now on to today's episode. Uh, If you didn't catch part one, I really recommend uh, going back to iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you're listening to this, and listen to part one first. Um, So Adam, um, we've talked about the big success of the nonprofit, Pencils of Promise, the New York Times bestselling book, um, Promise of a Pencil, this venture-backed company mission you here that uh, is really turning education on its ear um, with, a, with a whole new perspective that's much more aligned for um, a student. But the thing I want to start with is, as we were ending part one of the episode, you were talking about um, dealing with the anxiety of being a leader and an entrepreneur and, and these kind of things, and you talked about your routine of getting up in the morning and spending time feeding your, twin, your, your twins, newborns here, before you ever check email. And you used a word that is really interesting to me. You talked about being present with them. Um, it sounds like that's something that uh, is intentional. It's not by accident, being present. Yep, for sure. How do you think that applies? I mean, you talked about it at home with family, and, and I, I'm completely with you there. Um, how do you think as leaders we could work on that at work, whether it's with our staff or our clients? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know, the, the simplest one is to acknowledge where the issue stems from, right? And it comes in almost, I would say, unequivocally for most people from their phone. Um, you know, I remember a couple of years ago when I was the CEO of Pencil Promise, uh, we did our, our internal feedback reviews 
uh, which we would do quarterly. And you know, most of the feedback that I got was basically saying, um, I'd like more of your time. That said, I understand as the CEO, you have to be external. You're doing a lot of fundraising and partnership building. But when you're in the office, when I meet with you, you're also answering emails and looking at your phone and addressing those emails on your phone. And at the time, you know, I thought, oh, I'm being efficient and I'm multitasking and I can listen to what they're telling me while <laughs> actually following up. But, you know, it was really valid feedback that these people didn't feel like um, I was giving them the value that they deserved. And, you know, if I'm honest with myself, uh, I wasn't able to be particularly present in that meeting and give the type of um, kind of, let's say, feedback or you know, a set of suggestions that we're actually going to move our organization forward because I was always kind of thinking about the thing on my plate or my inbox that I needed to address next. And so what I started to do was just, you know, put my phone down. I would close my computer screen. And when I met with somebody on our internal team, I was focused on them. And, you know, I would ask everybody to kind of implement that across various meetings and, you know, give people the attention that they deserve. And, you know, sure, I, I lost a little bit of time answering emails, but you know, my quality, uh, the quality in which I probably uh, was addressing those emails with suffered, right? Because uh, I was only, only giving the email half my attention when I was talking to somebody else. So I think it's it's about putting down the phone. And, you know, as I alluded to at the end of uh, part one of our interview um, together, it was really, really important for me recently to just decide that um, I'll leave my phone charging. I won't look at it at all until after I've uh, fed our twins in the morning and spent time, you know, talking to my wife about the day ahead and just be with my family in those early hours from 7 to 8 a.m. because the emails are going to be there. No one's, you know, up in arms about uh, me not replying by 7, you know, 50 in the morning. Um, and so I think those subtle changes have actually yielded a really, really big difference. Yeah. You know, um, a question we like to ask our different guests is um, if there's anyone early in their life or early in their career that really stands out as setting the example for how to treat others. Is, is there anybody that comes to mind when we ask that question? Yeah. Um, you know, certainly, you know, my parents, my, my siblings, uh, my brother, uh, probably in particular, have all had large impacts on me in that capacity. But, um, you know, I, I remember a really kind of uh, pivotal moment in my life was uh, when I met um, a gentleman named Ray Chambers for the first time, Ray uh, essentially built the modern private equity industry, uh, kind of the notion of leverage buyouts was led by uh, Ray and a company that he had uh, called West Ray Capital. And, you know, he basically decided at a relatively young age that he had made more money than he uh, needed and that he wanted to devote the rest of his life to humanitarian services. And uh, so he became the U.N. Special Envoy for Malaria, uh, and eventually the U.N. Special Envoy for all um, global health millennium development goals. And uh, somebody introduced us. Uh, I had this kind of unique opportunity to sit in front of this man that I admired so much. And just the way in which, um, you know, he, he kind of opened up like his whole Rolodex. I remember earlier in the week I had spoken to somebody else who was not at raised level, but still a very powerful and successful businessman. And um, during the conversation, the guy kept on saying, do you know this person? I want to connect you to this person. And what I realized was this guy was connecting me all to people that were, call it, on my level, um, you know, individuals that were running kind of organizations that were at a similar stage to mine. And when I spoke to Ray, um, you know, I probably took down in that first conversational list of eight to 12 names that he wanted me to speak to. And it was like a who's who of every industry. These were not people on my level. They were people, you know, what I would consider on, on his level. Um, I remember him saying, oh, yeah, there's, there's a really smart young man that I mentor 
uh, on technology named Jack Dorsey. Uh, or, you know, he was like, there's another gentleman. It was the head of, you know, the Cisco Foundation, um, you know, senators and politicians. I mean, just incredible people. And uh, it was really mind blowing for me that in literally the, the first meeting, he had just made an assessment that he was going to kind of call it invest in me and ended up um, and still to this day is someone that I consider a great mentor. He ended up joining the board of Pencil of Promise several weeks later, which was another really transformational moment for us. And I think just kind of seeing um, Ray in action and this notion that, you know, even at the time I was, if I had to guess, 28, maybe 29 or something like that. But, you know, this this kind of young guy uh, that he saw potential in and that he wanted to really um, devote some type of call it his mind share or his almost like, you know, social capital of his friends or, you know, kind of people that he had um, engaged with in a business context, that he was so forthright and so generous uh, without any expectation of receiving anything in return has, has always really inspired me and helped me to think about how I could, you know, hopefully support the next generation of, of great leaders. That's great. Um, you think about the value of someone like that. And um, to me, just hearing that, it makes me think of the people that have done that for me too. But it also mm-hmm. makes me think of when I get requests for time for someone who is maybe earlier in their career than me, and it's really not a good time or right. it's not convenient and yeah. the whole like kind of pay it forward factor really like, yeah. especially as you're telling that story, it makes me think about like, yeah, am I willing to, am I willing to use up some of my social capital on somebody who can't do something for me and mm-hmm. like really be a minch, you know? And right. that's what makes, I don't know. Anyways, what a great guy. Hopefully we can all follow Ray's example, right? Definitely. Definitely. Um, so another question we like to ask guests, um, we've got our charity child rescue. Um, we, you know, build aftercare facilities in Cusco, Peru right now. We, uh, have a for youth by youth program at high schools in America, how to not get targeted. Um, we help fund undercover rescue missions and pay for police training, stuff like this. If you were our advisor trying to get more people involved in, in this issue, what, what would be something that comes to mind for you? Sure. Um, so ironically, actually, after I wrote my book, uh, The Promise of a Pencil, I had a lot of people reaching out and saying, I finished your book. I'm all excited. I want to start an organization. What do I do next? Or I have an organization. We haven't you know, gotten to the size and scale that I have envisioned for us in this period of time. You know, what's your advice? And you know, I would try and do quick coffee chats or phone calls with you know, various people. Over time, I realized I just have so much knowledge in my head about how to you know, start and scale to basically an eight-figure organization. Um, that there's no way for anybody else to actually learn these things. Unfortunately, I had to kind of learn them from scratch and there wasn't a good resource. So um, I don't even know if you knew this, but I actually developed a course uh, online. It's just called thenonprofitplaybook.com. Anybody can go there to thenonprofitplaybook.com and uh, actually enroll. And you know, there's 10 modules. I teach people like literally everything that I ever learned that I wish somebody else could teach me. Um, and then you also have a, a private uh, Facebook group of like peer experts and there's hundreds of people that have taken it and it's been really, really incredible to see. So I wish I could give um, a very long answer, but that has like hours and hours of guidance. I think, you know, it depends on the stage at which um, the organization hey, is at. To the but I think one of the things that a lot of people really don't um, take advantage of is uh, the notion of multi-year giving circles. So basically, these are commitments of um, individuals that are in cre- and oftentimes great positions. But what I heard a lot at Pencils of Promise from people, especially as we started to grow, was, look, I love what you're doing. I want to get involved in a meaningful way. The one thing I don't have is time. You know, I have money. I have relationships. I just don't have a lot of time. 
And so I don't want to join your board. I can't give you that, but I can certainly support in other ways. And when you put together these multi-year giving circles, you know, we call them our advisory board. Um, an organization like Charity Water calls it the well for them. Uh, but you hopefully, you know, create this kind of unique, uh, almost exclusive body. And you ask people to make a three-year commitment and set your minimum threshold at whatever you want. It can be, you know, $1,000 for three years. It could be $100,000 at least for three years. But um, it ends up becoming a really simple ask for you. Uh, and you can generate a lot of great revenue off of these multi-year giving circles and bring together a really special group of people that look forward to the relationships that they're able to build, not through a traditional business networking forum, but through shared philanthropy. What an incredible resource for the rest of us. I'm totally signing up for this after that call, after this call's over. Uh, that's great. That's like one of the best answers we've received in 150 interviews. So thanks so much. Um, yeah, my pleasure. There's a lot more. I mean, as I said, like, no, but just, I learned a lot and I, and I just, it was so frustrating for me that nobody, you know, when I, all these people are like, how do I start a nonprofit? How do I grow a nonprofit? How do I do fundraising? How do I do marketing? When do I pay myself? How do I pay my staff? And like, there's really no place to learn these things. So that's what um, the nonprofit playbook is. I love it. That's awesome. Well, listen, um, along the same lines of, you know, whether it's growing Pencils of Promise, whether it's getting Mission U funded and growing Mission U, um, what do you feel like are the most important principles that maybe you wouldn't have figured out if you hadn't learned by doing? Um, huh, that's a good one. Um, you know, I, I think one is that uh, the moments of greatest growth are in the failures rather than the successes. I think we spend a lot of time trying to avoid failure, mm-hmm. uh, especially when you're starting something. And, you know, over time, if I look back at the moments that I really learned something, it was almost unequivocally when I failed. There, there's like very few moments when I was really successful at something that I learned uh, anything hugely meaningful out of it. Because essentially, if, if you succeed, you're kind of reinforcing what you already knew, right? Because you made a decision. It was based on something that you felt in your gut or that you had observed others doing. And you said, OK, you know, I'm going to do what I already know or what I believe to be correct. And you know, now I have the positive validation because it worked. The moments of real growth are when you try something, it doesn't work out. And suddenly you're faced with this moment where you go, oh, shit, I have to actually now become uncomfortable and figure out how to do this correctly. And, you know, you also decide, do you want to keep going or do you want to pack up and kind of go home and put your tail between your legs? And there's just so much growth that evolves out of the failure. And very few people spend time trying to put themselves in positions where they fail. But I find that, you know, if you're not in a position where you're likely to fail, you know, at least multiple times, call it a quarter, um, then you're not stretching far enough and you're not ultimately going to find the level of success that you're probably seeking. Um, so that, that, that's a big one for me that I just, you know, really learned by doing. And then I, I think there's another, um, kind of, uh, focus on not trying to be the person who does everything, but instead trying to find a team who can do the things that you, um, aren't exceptional at much better than you ever could hope to. And then really investing your time and energy in, um, empowering and training them to really thrive in those, those spaces. I think, you know, a lot of people early on in their lives and oftentimes even in their careers, they don't do well in group projects because they try and kind of do everything and they don't know how to delegate. They don't know how to manage others. Um, that's something you have to just really learn by doing. Um, but I, I think one key is just to remember that, um, you know, the, the highest functioning employee is the person always who just does their boss's job better than their boss can and takes that pressure away from the boss so they can work on a higher level issue. And if you can really focus on accomplishing that in almost any position you're in, you're going to find success. So I want to talk about this a bit more. Um, 
you know, the business media glorifies the the CEO that can do it all, the incredible visionary, right? And yeah. it, it makes it, you know, it paints this picture of, you know, the woman who did it all or the guy who did it all, right? Um, yeah, yeah. When, you know, in real life, it's it's systems, you know, it, it's super well-oiled systems with highly trained individuals who yeah. know the standards to meet and have, you know, have the flexibility to innovate and these kind of things. Um, talk about training for a second. You, you were talking about training them well. Um, mm-hmm. So many people want a system, um, but it, it seems like not everybody is willing to pay the price of training. Um, it sounds like that's something that you have a bit of a belief in. Oh, heavily. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I believe in a couple of things. I mean, one is just if you're not investing in your team, then ultimately you're, you're hurting your team. I mean, we're, we're moving to an era just from an education standpoint where you were a full-time student from five to 22 and then a full-time professional from there on after. And that is no longer the case. Uh, we are all lifelong learners at this stage. And so, you know, you don't need to be a full-time student until a certain age. Obviously, that's part of our, our uh, reason for creating Mission U as a one-year college alternative, because we don't think most people need four to six years in order to be qualified to enter a company. Um, and obviously, our curriculum is you know, designed with these great companies uh, that help uh, us think through the needs of a you know, 21st century economy. But uh, you know, with all that in mind, um, you have to kind of reinvest uh, time and time again, not only in yourself, but your future workforce. And so that means, you know, upskilling. Uh, that means having open feedback sessions that I, I find role playing actually to be an incredible, incredible tool that very few people use effectively. But, you know, sitting with somebody and saying, okay, show me your, let's call it pitch, and then say, okay, let's turn the tables. I'm going to be you and uh, you be, you know, kind of customer X. And then showing them how it's done properly is such a powerful tool uh, for, for long term training. So, you know, I'm a big proponent of it, um, and I think it's something that uh, every company and organization should be investing heavily in. Um, what about the people that say, yeah, 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 I know, I know it's a great idea, and, and I, I, you know, I told somebody in HR we need to have more of a training and development plan, but you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm busy doing the work. I don't, I don't have time to, to be involved in that. Yeah, that person's always going to be busy then doing the work. <laughs> I mean, it's just, just just simple. Like If you want to make your life better, um, then you need to invest in people who – are ultimately the greatest asset of any company, right? Is is kind of the people, and it's also important for culture. I mean, it, it, it's it's cool now to see, honestly, that millennials aren't like some new group that's entering the workforce, but it's now just the workforce is millennials, um, and you know, millennials just have a different perspective from previous generations, and they're interested in autonomy. They're interested in you know the ability to kind of craft their own path to the kind of jobs and careers of um, their long term desires, and uh, they need to see that a company values them and is going to invest in their long-term growth. And so it might be nice for the moment uh, for any you know, leader at a company to say, oh, okay, HR can take this on. But what you're going to see is it's going to be tough to retain those top employees because this is something that they care about. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking now more to the system that you've invented at Mission U. And um, we're real book nerds here at at uh, the show, and uh, I'm I'm in the middle of a Clayton Christensen book right now. I, I really kind of geek out about innovation books, and I'm reading yeah. his book, uh, Competing Against Luck. And he's okay. he's talking about um, really dialing in on what's the job to be done that the customer mm. wants, not can I perfect this tool, and mm. and how that leads to such different answers. And I feel like whether you whether you knew it or not, you're like very very closely following his approach. Um, <laughs> Can you talk about, as someone who is doing something different, 
How do you know the difference or, or what's your criteria when it comes to knowing the difference between like the Henry Ford, hey, if I'd asked customers what they want, they would have said faster horses, right? So yeah. sometimes they don't, they don't know they want it until they see it exist versus the mm-hmm. like, you know, am I just building a Segway, right? That sounds great. Right. It's gonna, everybody, everybody tells me it's going to be great, but it's not really going to resonate when it gets out in the marketplace. Yeah. Do you have any guidance for, for people as they're trying to navigate, you know, how to, how to know which one they are? Um, you know, it's actually, I never been asked that question, but my, my gut intuition tells me that there, there's a, there's like an underlying qualifier that they need to be honest with themselves about, which is, are they a good marketer? Mm. Because, um, you know, the notion of like creating something before people know that they want it only works if you're able to market it in a way that makes it, um, aspirational for them and can move them as well as culture in that direction. I mean, the reason that like Steve Jobs could pull off you know, all these things in, in that kind of Henry Ford vein that you're describing is because he's arguably the greatest marketer of the last 25 years, right? I mean, Henry Ford is known today by his first name uh, because he was such an incredible marketer, right? I mean, mm. like, I, I don't know the first name of pretty much any other person who started any other company, right? Like, who, who's the person <laughs> who started behind? Chevy, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't know Mr. Chevrolet. I don't know, like, Mr. You know, Nissan or like any other companies, right? And, and there's probably somebody, I guess, you know, Tesla maybe is the only one. And that's because Elon Musk is also probably, you know, one of the other greatest marketers of the last decade. And so I, I think if you want to go down that path to say, all right, I'm going to show people the future that they don't even know that they want yet. You have to inherently be an absolutely like top 0.01 percentile marketer to not only have the vision, but then to persuade others to, you know, want that, that vision that you're laying out in front of them. And, and that to me is the more important question is like, how gifted of a marketer are you? And then if you aren't that strong of a marketer, then you probably should look at market research and kind of, you know, go along with the trends that, uh, you know, the kind of minimum viable product approach will, will inform you. And, you know, if you feel like you're this incredibly gifted marketer, then you can move in that other direction. But, but that to me is actually the more important qualification. Yeah. Well, assuming someone is a good marketer and they have paid the price to gain those skills and, and they do believe in training. Um, as you think about systemizing, you know, going from the leader is a good marketer and has a vision for this to really like helping the whole rest of the company get it in the bones of like, we are going to systematically duplicate that skill down uh-huh. across the company. What kind of principles do you have or, or what, what kind of guidance would give to people of how to know what training is actually going to get that done or what type of activities are going to help the whole organization get that vision and, and, and rise those skills, you know, raise those skill sets? Uh, you know, I think you actually have to put time and energy into it. I mean, you know, if you're not doing like an offsite and then, I mean, I'll give you an example. Years ago at, at a Pence Prom's offsite, we, uh, it, it was just clear to me that like everyone was telling my story, right? I mean, I had this kind of unique story that I met this boy in India. I asked him what he wanted most in the world. He said a pencil. And then I carried pens and pencils and, you know, traveled through all these countries. And that was the founding narrative. But uh, if you meet somebody at, you know, a cocktail hour and it's like, so tell me about yourself. And their answer is, well, I work at this company and the company started by this guy who went on this journey. You're interested in the guy. You're not interested in the person you're talking to. And so, you know, what I really pushed for was that every single person in our company had an interesting story, right? I was like, all of you that came to work at an organization like Pens of Promise, you have some great narrative, right? And, and you need to find your story um, so that you can not just like market the organization, but market yourself as like a compelling part of it to every person in every conversation you're having. And so, you know, we spent like 
basically, you know, I would say it was probably an hour or two just on this exercise about how do you tell your story in a compelling way. And so we had like flashcards and two people would sit across the desk from one another. And, you know, I had to be who I am. And then the person across the table would like lift up a flashcard and it would say like doctor uh, who's 35 years old, or it would say like, you know, spouse of your friend, or it would say, you know, kind of all these different characters that you might come across. Um, and then each person had to really practice and refine their kind of personal pitch. And it was, I think, a really transformational moment. Okay. So I'm so interested to hear you actually had people role play it because yeah. the training and development industry as a whole focuses so much on knowing what to do rather than uh-huh. practi- practicing it enough for it to become a habit. Uh-huh. Um, that's, that's so genius to actually not just have somebody write it down, but practice it enough that it starts oh, to yeah, roll off the tongue, to. right? Yep, definitely. Well, listen, you, you've been interviewed a bunch of times, covered by the press. What, what do people not ask you that you would want to talk about? Or, or what questions should I be asking on this show? <laughs> um, that's a good one. Um, you know, I, I always find that people are inherently curious about like the models of a company. You know, like I can tell you the five most likely questions I'm going to get asked after I give a speech about Pencil Promise. Every time. It's like, how do you choose your countries? How do you train your teachers? Blah, 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 blah. But what I, I'm always more interested in it because very few people are actually about to start an organization that's going to build schools in the developing world is, is the kind of personal journey, right? I mean, how do you make the decisions that you make? What, you know, leads to these, these kind of um, called breakthroughs or, you know, moments, blah, 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 um, that, that are most helpful for you. I guess a question that uh, I don't get asked very often that I wish I got asked uh, more is like, who is the um, most valuable kind of like member of your support system mm. that deserves recognition? And what is it that they do that enables you to kind of push through, you know, any moment? Because like, yeah, I mean, let's, hear, absolute, let's hear about that. I mean, the absolute truth is like, you know, and I think anyone who has a spouse recognizes this is that like there's no solo entrepreneur journey if you have a significant other. Um, because like, you know, my, my wife is like inherently my other co-founder, you know, I, I, my co-founder, Mike is, is my official co-founder at Mission U, but like both of our wives are unofficial co-founders of the company because they have had to like hear about this freaking thing so many times and, and their input actually has a meaningful impact. I'll be like, Hey, I'm dealing with this. This person we're considering hiring gave me this response. And how would you navigate it? And, you know, sometimes she gives me like a perfect insight. Sometimes she's like, Adam, I don't want to talk about it. Let's talk about something else. And having the, you know, space over the next day to kind of put deeper thoughts against that specific question is actually really valuable. And so I don't know, like I'm, I'm much more interested in listening than I am in speaking (laughs) in general. And, and I, I find that like the credit always going to like the entrepreneur is something that I'd love to see shift in our society. And, you know, like there should be at minimum a day of recognition where, yeah. you know, my, like my wife is, you know, dealing with our newborn twins all day. And I'm like, she said to me, like, when do I come to the office with you at some point? Like, when's like, bring your spouse to work day. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, honestly, if we traded, like, I think I'd be way more exhausted than you would if, if you tried to yeah. take on my job and I took on yours. So I, I'd just love to see more appreciation for like the support systems that exist around us rather than uh, this mm. kind of false perception that like we're all taking it, you know, on our own shoulders without, you know, others helping us bear that burden. Yeah. Uh, I, I definitely think of my wife as like my entrepreneurial therapist, right? Yeah, <laughs> and, exactly. Like, confidant, cheerleader, like the list is pretty long. Yeah. Um, 
And it's interesting, actually, how much more insight she has sometimes than my partners, because over the last 15 years of us doing this together, we're our 15 year anniversary is next week. And yes. um, we've you know had entrepreneurial failings from the start. Right. But uh, mm-hmm. she like she kind of knows how to listen through my BS also yeah. and like call me yeah. on things. And right. Uh, that's, that's an interesting point to make. Um, <clears throat> well, uh, the other one that you brought up was this idea of, of how do you know, or what leads you personally to be able to make decisions? Uh, let, let's go for that for maybe your final question here as we wrap up part two of the interview. Um, so, so just repeat it one more time. Well, how do you, you were just, when I was asking what questions do people not ask, you said, Oh, they all ask about the model, but they don't ask my personal progression and what, you know, what helped me to finally make this decision or get over the hump on this, I think is kind of where you were going. Yeah. So what, what do you think it is? Like what, what is that personal progression or that personal story or the, the elements that have let you know, okay, this is the time to make a decision or here's how I can, here's, yeah. here's how I know I'm comfortable enough to take a yeah, you know, I mean, step my, out in my, faith. My, sure. My, my process is usually I'll kind of independently have this like kind of lightning bolt of call it inspiration or ideation where I get really excited about something. And, you know, the first thing I do is, is probably I, I like feel the need to either write it down or tell somebody I need to like get it out of my head. And oftentimes it's kind of both. And so, you know, usually I'll go to the people closest to me, oftentimes my wife or, you know, a family member or a close friend, and I'll kind of share the idea and I'll say, what do you think? And I, I usually spend somewhere between like two to three weeks kind of chewing through the idea ruminating on it, sharing it with as many people as possible and seeing what the feedback is. And honestly, it's not really that important to me what their thoughts are. What's important to me is what are my thoughts after hearing what they think? You know, there have been ideas where like literally every single person is like, that's a terrible idea. And that makes me want to do it even more after the two to three weeks of feedback. There are other times where everyone says it's a bad idea and I'm like, ah, like they're kind of right. And like deep down in my heart, I know they're, they're, they're right about it. Um, (laughs) And, and I move away from it. But I need the kind of, you know, feedback to then shape how I feel, not necessarily taking the feedback as the new shape, but just seeing the impact that it has. And then usually at the end of that, you know, process, I go back to the person I started with and I'm like, hey, here's where I'm at. What do you think? And um, I, I see what they think about it. And then I move forward. So in that process, like I need the, the external feedback from others to help me get to what, what I would consider starts out as like a raw piece of kind of marbleized truth. And then, you know, the chiseling process happens through conversations with others. And ultimately, uh, that's, that's kind of, you know, who I think deserves a lot of the credit as well. Yeah, that's great. Well, listen, we appreciate all the time you spent with us today. Um, obviously, uh, if, if people didn't catch part one of the episode, um, the big push here is for somebody who, uh, wants to, understand what can happen at Mission U. There's a great website, missionu.com, but there's this $500 referral. If you know somebody that uh, this program for getting through a, a, a school alternative and actually getting a job, they'll pay you 500 bucks and the student 500 bucks to do it. And I uh, couldn't recommend it more. Hope everybody here listening goes and checks out missionu.com. Anything to add here before we end, Adam? No, no. I, uh, I appreciate the time. You know, if anyone out there uh, wants to shoot me some thoughts. I'm always uh, available over email via Adam at uh, just letter I promise dot org. And uh, otherwise, you can check out M I S S I O N U Mission U dot uh, com, and that's our uh, handle across you know Instagram and Facebook and a whole bunch of other channels. And uh, if you want to you know sign up for uh, the course I was referencing, that's at uh, the nonprofit playbook dot com. And uh, otherwise, I post um, blogs and talks and everything else at uh, just adambraun dot com. Love it. Thanks again for making time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. 
That was part two of our interview. If you missed part one, please go back an episode and download the episode before this one for the first half of the interview. As always, please check iCollective.co for show notes of things referenced during the interview and to learn more about our guest. And if you're interested, we'd love to have you learn more about the charity Child Rescue. Go to the menu page on iCollective and click on Child Rescue. Thanks so much. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara. Cold cut combo. Veggie delight. Or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.